This is Histories of the Unexpected. He's the famous historical adventurer Dr Sam Willis. And he is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He is Professor James Daybell. And we are your hosts for Histories of the Unexpected. Each week we discuss a surprising subject oozing with unexpected historical significance. And this week it's weapons. Which is all about gifts glory and of course saddles nonsense it's all about unicorns and chamber pots everyone knows that if you like what you hear please leave us a review on itunes subscribe to the podcast and tell all of your friends we're on twitter you can follow me at dr sam willis and you can follow me at james daybell and you can follow histories of the unexpected at unexpected pod we are proud to be part of the excellent history hit network home of dan snow's history hit and other great shows coming soon and you can find out more about what we've got planned in in the forthcoming months, show notes, video clips, photos of everything we discuss and much, much more at historyhit.com forward slash unexpected. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a special edition of Histories of the Unexpected, where we will be audio googling through history, exploring the history of things that you didn't even know had a significant story to tell, like herbs, hats or hairpins. And we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how simply everything has a history and crucially how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, that the history of Christmas is in fact all about rioting and meat pies or that the history of the quilt is all about literacy, family bonding and flying carpets. Oh, I want to do that one. We'll do Excellent. that one soon. Uh, the man sitting opposite me is the soldier of centuries. It's Professor James Daybell. And the man sitting opposite me is the major general of millennia. Mm. It is the wonderful Dr. Sam Willis. Nice. Together, we will be piloting you on this uncharted and frankly, highly dangerous flight into the past. Each week, one of us takes the lead. And this week, because I currently have a series on BBC Four, BBC Four, Britain's Armed History, the Sword Musket and Machine Gun, episode one. That's right, everyone. This week, it's on weapons. Weapons. I saw this last night. I thought it was terrific. And I'm not just saying that just because I'm sitting opposite you here. I thought it was excellent. That's very kind. Excellent. Now, weapons, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because I wouldn't say that's an unexpected subject for history, but certainly there are all sorts of unexpected ways that we can explore it, aren't there? Yeah. All right. Top of your head. Top of my head. Something I, I random have, from I, weapons. I, I, I have a taxonomy. Uh, we haven't done a taxonomy for a while. A taxonomy mm. is where you, you sort of order things and you sort of think about how, how, you can, how you can sort things out into different sort of categories. How do we think about weapons as a taxonomy? So we can think about weapons themselves. And if you think about your programme last night... Um, sword, musket, machine gun, you're looking at different types of weapons and how they developed over time. We can think about weapons in terms of formal weapons, so sword, musket, cannon, tank, whatever. You can think about improvised weapons, people using their bare hands to kill, mm. a pen gun, um, people using poison or gas. We can think about how technology advances over time so you can look at how you know the the way in which the cannon evolved and changed warfare we can think about uses of weapons how they're deployed training fighting techniques marksmen we can think about military tactics battles wars one of the things that i think came out really clearly last night is the way that you related the history of weapons to major events, mm. to peoples, to nations, to battles. We can think about diplomacy, peace, statecraft, um, military force, balance of power, arms race, superiority. 
We can think about it in terms of wars, World War One, World War Two, the Cold War, the scary spectre that we have in 2017 about a new arms race. We can think about the morality and policing of weapons, you know, the non-proliferation treaty for nuclear arms. We can think of the Geneva Convention. You talked also about chivalry last night, which through the medieval period is a very important um, is a very important uh, force, the, I, the I think power of the a, church. A lot, so much of it is to do with um, behaviour and rules, yeah. which is yeah, essentially yeah. gone sort of crystallised down in with, with with that issue of chivalry. And I, I think one of, the, out of all of those things you're mentioning there, the, the, the thing that really strikes me is how you can basically divide weapons in between the personal and the impersonal. Weapons that yep. you actually have to get up close and personal to kill yep. use such yep. a, to beat yep. someone with or to kill someone with and then and then you know the the nuclear bomb is you know the sort of the the far distant <laughs> one where you can you you can press a button and an intercontinental ballistic missile takes someone out and yep. I, I think that's very interesting the way that that um weapons changed this kind of relationship in combat it's very different from sort of dueling as well where there, yeah. was, there was that ritual all to yeah. do with weapons but one of the things that i thought was striking was the way in which you, the show started and you were in the trenches in World War One, and you brought out these kind of macabre sort of hand-to-hand combat weapons, which could have been used in any historical period. You know, you've got, you've got the mace there, you've got the 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 sort of hobnail yeah, hobnails into the trench clubs. Yeah, you know, and 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 basically, you know, that kind of that kind of warfare has not changed over the centuries. No. You know, when you are up and close and personal and needing to sort of you know really kind of get down and fight you know what you don't want is an uzi or something like that what you want is something that is going to be really effective in very tight in yeah. very tight conditions so that that kind of baffled that kind of you know made me think about when we think about chronology and the development of weaponry over time there is also this kind of degree of continuity mm. and uh, i mean i think one of the things that i want to talk about a bit later as well is um is who who uses the weapons and how historians yep. are responding yep. to that yep. just to make make everyone out there aware that that there's all sorts of fantastic research going on at the moment about who used what type of weapons yep. and when they were used and i think more interesting and more important to that it was actually society's response to say I think women the way that women murderesses actually what they use to kill people mm. and how society responded to it it's a really interesting thing but I'm going to start with something which um is going to take us in a very strange direction because uh, weapons of course are all to do with unicorns unicorns here we go okay this is uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is this is uh, this is a transcript from from uh, a trial at the old Bailey in um, 1730. Where John Williams of St Andrews in Holborn was indicted for the murder of Joseph Hastings by giving him several mortal bruises with an unicorn's horn. <laughs> the 17th of August in 1729, of which bruises and wounds he languished till the 28th of the same month and then died. So here we are. Someone's been um, been beaten to death with a unicorn's horn. So let me read you a little bit about it. There's quite a lot to unpack <laughs> in this paragraph. John Drew 
deposed that the prisoner came into the skittle ground with the unicorn's horn in his hand and said to him, Drew, this would knock a man down of an hundred a year. And the deceased, who was the owner of the horn, said to the prisoner, I desire you would carry my property where you had it, and added that he had been bid more money for that horn than any man at the ground had in his pocket, that upon this the prisoner called him a fancy son of a bitch and told him he deserved to have his head broke in with it, to which he replied, if he did, he should pay dear for it. And then he struck the deceased with the horn upon the stomach and pushed him on the jaw with the end of it. And the deceased fell down against a stump that was in the skittle grounds and afterwards struck up his heels that then the deceased said, you son of a bitch, what do you do this for? I will make you pay dear for it. Then he hit him again. And while he was on the ground, he hit him with the horn and then the horn being taken out of his hand, he fell a jumping on him, kicking him as he lay upon the ground upon his breast, belly and members, giving him a great many kicks. He knew not how many that the deceased lay with his eyes shut for about the space of two minutes. He saw him after he was dead and found his head had been broken, his head and face bruised in five places, and that his private parts were bruised and looked like a piece of neck beef. Ooh, what a description. <laughs> it's extraordinary. He's really taken him to task with a unicorn horn. He has. Well, Do we know that it's a real unicorn? I don't. We, well, uh, yes, I'm sure it was a real <laughs> unicorn. That was the point. No, um, so this raises a couple of things. One is that the... the Sort of the savage violence. So he's yep. he's beaten someone to death with a unicorn horn, and yep. then someone I think has ripped the unicorn horn out of his hand, and then he's promptly used his fists and feet and yep. stamped and killed yep. this guy. So two things about this I love. Um, the first is that he's used a unicorn horn. <laughs> yeah, and we'll talk about that in a minute about about the history of unicorn horns. Um, and the second, well, I think, is it's to do with the value of this unicorn horn. They're actually arguing about the price. He wants a certain amount of money yeah. for this unicorn horn. And then he's turned it into a weapon. Now, if you look at the sort of the history of weapons, one of the interesting things is that the majority of, of kind of spontaneous murders like this happen with with a weapon that's simply lying around. Yeah. Um, it's, it's most of them. A chair leg. Is, a chair, uh, I'm looking, sort of looking around here. Like, yeah. I, I'm in James's study. And if I wanted to kill him, I would probably start with a coffee mug. <laughs> I'd move on to a boomerang uh, and, and a champagne bottle from, champagne my, from bottle my wedding and some excellent screwdrivers so yes. those would be the way oh, i've got an opinel knife there have you have yes several opinel knives yeah so i could cause you significant yeah. damage just from what's lying around here um he's gone for this unicorn horn so they're trying to sell the unicorn unicorn horn was very expensive so the history of unicorn horns is really interesting obviously it's not a unicorn horn it's the extended canine tooth of a narwhal ah so um, that's a whale with a kind of an enormous protruding horn, you yes. know, essentially. Yes. Front yes. Face. Yes. So these were known to exist from the 14th century. There's one at Powderham Castle. Is there? Yeah, I didn't know. We that. should go and we should go and do a we should go and do a podcast on narwhal horns. That's extraordinary. How big is it? Yeah. Enormous. Like eight uh, feet tall. Two, 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 two and a half meters. Yeah. Uh, is it sort of yeah. twisted and not? Uh, I can't remember. Okay. But it's it's scary looking. They're, I wouldn't want to be attacked with one. No, they're very very beautiful things as well, and um, because they were so rare, um, they could be the most valuable thing in the ownership of a head of state. Mm. 
there was one that was given to, to Elizabeth I, which had actually been carved and, and bejeweled, that was worth £10,000, which is the same cost as a castle. Yeah, enormous amount <laughs> yeah, of money. Absolutely. So um, there's there's a curious history of unicorn horns here, which I think which you, you must be aware of this. From the, yes, yes. England and they stuff. were used for medicinal oh. purposes as well, which I'm going to talk a little bit about later okay. on. Hmm. I mean, one of the thing, thinking about that, one of the things that strikes me is, um, and I was going to talk about earlier on, is about the ubiquity of weaponry. You know that that um, you know living in the UK today, we are not allowed to carry guns. We're not allowed to carry knives. Um, but throughout lots of periods of history, people would have been weaponed up. People would have had would have had a you know a, a, a sword. Certainly, almost everyone, ordinary people, would have carried knives. A knife was one of the basic commodities that you'd have had with you. Basic tools that you'd have had with you. You'd have eaten with it. You'd have cut things with it, and you'd have also used it for self-defense. And this is really prescient at the moment when we have, you know, debates, particularly in North America, about the right to carry guns. And this is something that is absolutely enshrined in the, you know, in the in the Constitution. It's something that people feel, whatever you think about it, it's something that people feel, you know, very keenly about on both sides of, of the debate. Um, but you know, when when we're thinking about that kind of debate, it it is worth thinking about it in in perspective. Where did that where did that, you know, where did that come from? You know, the right to bear arms and the importance of having an armed militia at a time, you know, when people needed such things. There's a really interesting um, aspect to that in uh, in British history, English history. Um, and it's all to do with Cromwell and the, the Civil War. So yeah. um, the Civil War is very much linked with the army. The, the country was taken control of by the army. And ever since then, there was a major amount of fear. The army was associated with tyranny, essentially. Yeah. It was to do with imposing someone's idea on the people. Um, and it's the opposite to the Navy. So the Navy is associated with all these sort of wonderful sort of ideas of trade, of wealth, of protection from invasion. It's all very positive. Yep. But the army is is very different. It's um, always been seen in this country, and certainly was for hundreds of years, um, about tyranny. And there's always been a, a, a major concern of arming arming the people yep. um, yep. To, to actually con- control the people. So there's, yep. there's always That's been this yep. extraordinary um, sort of dichotomy in the relationship between the British public and the two significant armed forces. I mean, the, ar- the army is not only an external force that, you know, that you, you, you use during time of war, but it's also a, a force for putting people down, for controlling insurrection. And throughout history, you're absolutely quite, quite right. You know, it's been used in exactly that way. The other thing that I think we, you know, looking at that at, your your example that you throw up there the other thing the other way of looking at an unexpected way of looking at weapons is from a medical point of view mm. and looking at the severe um you know injuries inflicted on people and and of course you know along with that goes the development in medical techniques you know so understanding how the blood works in in yeah. in, in in the body learning how to cure people learning how to, to yeah. treat wounds but the knowledge is just one part of that the other part of that is actually physically being able to depict it so it actually yep. had a massive impact on the artistic representations yep. of the human form yep. because yep. it's all very well saying um this is how you deal with an artery that's been cut by by something but then you've got to draw it so that someone yep. in the future can actually learn the lessons that you've discovered yeah um, so weapons, in that respect, were are sort of crucial to history. It's all to yeah, do with, yeah. with, with actually saving things for future generations. Saving yeah. something is really important. What's more important than saving someone's life? Yeah. Which brings me to my example here. Hmm. Um, what do you got? What have I got? I have that. Mm-hmm. 
Um, which is a yeah, that's a that's a man astride a war horse. Um, he, I presume it's a man. It's not a lady inside um, male armor, but it's um, definitely a it's an armored knight on an armored horse. But it's not any old armor. It's utterly exquisite. It it almost looks like uh, a tapestry. Yeah. Um, it's that's taken um, teams of people months and possibly years to actually yep. make something this is um the entire Mar- thing's like like a piece of jewelry actually yep. isn't it, it looks like yep. lace yep i've got it in color here um what is this that that's a that's a there's the the gauntlet oh uh, yes yeah, so there. that's um is that is that the armor that it used to be blue i don't think so okay so some i know that some kind of there was, there was a way of making armor kind of shine with a sort of bl- right. a blue sheen so imagine the first person turning up on the tournament field with his with his bright blue armor he would have looked cool but um yeah this has got um it's different colored as well so it's not just just exquisite in its shape it's 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 very um it's very beautiful in its coloring so it's it's a steel gauntlet that i'm showing a picture of here with with gold work on it really elaborate gold work and this was part of a a suit of armor uh, that was made in 1550 for the Polish monarch Sigmund II Augustus by the master armorer Konrad Lochner, uh, a German uh, master armorer. They were now, the best. What I'm what I'm interested in here is what we've been talking about so far is the idea of weapons and warfare and using weapons to to fight and to maim and to kill. What I want to think about here is how we look at the unexpected history of of weaponry. So if you if you looked at a, if you thought about this suit of armor in a standard way, a standard sort of form of interpretation, you might think about it in terms of craftsmanship. You might think about it in terms of of knights and, and warfare. But what I want to think about it here is its significance as a gift. Yeah. And its significance in terms of picking up on what you were saying about about memory, this survives in the royal armory in the royal palace in Stockholm, mm-hmm. and this was made for the king of Poland, as I've already said, by a master craftsman. This is an ultimate in in high status weaponry. When he died, it was gifted by his sister Anna Jagellon, who is a mem- marries into the Swedish royal family uh, to her brother-in-law Johan III the king of Sweden who, who who lived through ruled through until until 1592 and what's interesting is when her when when Sigmundson um, dies Anna is by right the ruler of Poland um, she gives this gift of this armor to her brother-in-law the king of Sweden partly out of out of affection but also as a way of cementing his support for what she wants to do. Yeah. She doesn't want to rule as a, as a woman by herself, but she in fact wants to pass the, um, the throne to the young prince Sigmund of Sweden. And, and, and she needs her, her sort of Swedish brother-in-law's um, uh, agreement in this. So the, so the, so the armour here acts as a political diplomatic and dynastic gift from that is cementing generations so very different from from you know how we think about it in terms of a piece of sort of mere weaponry and it's part of a whole series of gifts uh, and forms of inheritance from Poland that are brought to the new king's coronation um Sigmund the young the young the young king becomes 
king of Poland and the king of Sweden. He's then kicked out of Sweden, and the gift that the gift of armor then becomes a, a sort of symbol of somebody who is a failure. Okay, nice. and it passes through um, to Gustavus Adolphus, one of my favorite yeah, yeah. Uh, sweet, of, of Swedish monarchs. What's interesting is that it survives in the royal armory in 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 Stockholm, and I think this is worth is worth dwelling on. Why does a nation decide that it is that it is going to preserve this kind of ceremonial armor? Now, in its early days, it's partly because what you've got is a new dynasty of Vasa kings. You've got these Renaissance monarchs in Sweden, and this is to basically trumpet their glory. Their, their spectacular sort of chivalry. So people would actually, visitors would actually be able to get into the armory, mm. which was in the palace. They'd actually be able to get in and actually see it. But what you see, if you look at the history of it now, the Royal Armory now, which is, which is, which is in the Royal Palace, right in the centre of Stockholm, all of this stuff is there on display. And there's very interesting... Uh, very, very interesting collections now. In the 18th and 19th century, they didn't just collect weapons, but they also collected a lot of ceremonial coronation uh, clothing. Um, there are the uh, the early cots of some of the sort of young young royals, mm. um, and also there's a, if you go downstairs, there's a wonderful display of all the carriages, okay. uh, including something that looks like a sort of 18th century My Little Pony yeah. with sort of plumes <laughs> plumes on it. So so what I want you to think about Ot, is the is the is the weapon as gift and as sort of memory object. I like it as a diplomatic gift because it's actually it's the opposite of a threat. Yeah. Isn't it? If you're yeah. actually so so you know, the thing that, that nations were concerned about was being threatened by other nations to secure their borders. Yeah. And and you know, to protect their protect their heritage, protect their language, protect their culture. If if you're actually presenting someone with a suit of armour, especially an exquisite one, then you're 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 providing them with protection from you yeah. as much as anything yeah. else. So yeah. I don't think you can get a better symbolic offering of peaceful intentions yeah yeah i mean giving somebody a gauntlet for example passing over a gauntlet mm. to somebody is a sign is a sign of peace but used in a different way to strike somebody with a gauntlet yeah is to issue a is to issue a threat mm. so a weapon so yeah i love i love that so so a weapon you know it is in fact something that's neutral it's about it's about it's a neutral object it's about what people do with it yeah that changes it mm. I think the, the, what, what people do with it is great because I mean, I've, I've been recently reading a PhD by someone called Anna Jenkin who got in touch with me when I was researching for my program on weapons. And it's to do with um, murderesses in London and Paris in the, um, in the late 17th and early 18th century. And it's one of the most interesting things I've read for a very long time. Anna, it's brilliant. And thank you for getting in touch with me. Um, I have to read it, Anna. Yeah, yeah you'd, you'd love it, actually. Um, uh, what I think is really good about it is it, it, it takes this kind of um, sort of two two sort of starting points. One is that women are, are associated with poison in yep. murders. And I, I've heard that a lot. These kind of claims that women are seven times more likely to poison someone than are men. And um, she's kind of exploded it and said, it's, it, you know, it, it's not true. And it's. It, there are there's a difference between murderesses in Paris in France where there was a complete obsession with poisoning um, to London yeah. um, and it's also it's linked with this idea that w women particularly murdered people in the home yeah. so so the assumption is they use poison and they did it at home um, 
uh, that's not true either. Um, she's proved that actually not only were the murders much more violent and less premeditated than is suggested by poison. You've got to pre-plan your poison. You've got to get your poison. You've got to cook up your curry, put it in the curry. You know, that's how you do yeah, it. Yeah. It takes a bit of planning. Yeah. Um, but it was actually much more spontaneous than that. They were, uh, women were killing killing their husbands, other women, whoever was around with objects that were just simply lying around, as mm. you would. Um, mm. uh, uh, fire pokers, chamber pots, pint glasses. Some poor <laughs> got murdered by a chamber pot. Um, so she's proved that murdering uh, by murderesses mm. was both more public in that it wasn't just done at home. Mm. It was done out in the open like that poor chap who was killed with a unicorn horn at the beginning. Mm. And it was more violent than we think. Now, what's really fascinating about it as well is that she's demonstrated that the press response to to murderesses was in, in, in many ways unique. It was very different uh, to the way that they responded to, to male murderers. Mm. Um, and th it was always somehow linked up with with social issues with um the way that the women's role was was changing at home with um threats to male identity threats to male male um professions it's absolutely extraordinary and it meant that in the early 17th century that these female murderesses because of what they did became famous and because of that they really became one of the very very earliest examples of true celebrity as we know fame for for what they did yeah so in in the sense of murder pamphlets and plays and yeah. and that kind of thing put on yeah i mean poison throughout history has been used as a weapon to you know bump people off you know and you can think of that you can trace this back to the ancient world you know and you know various people sort of po you know poisoned uh throughout time it it takes off in the in the medieval period and it, it you know you look at the look at the descriptions of it and it seems that it is pretty easy to get hold of stuff, you mm. know, with the rise oh, of the true. apothecary. Yeah, it's incredibly easy, easy to get to get hold poison of these dresses. things. You've talked to me about a poison, poison dresses before. Okay, so, so um, the really good depiction of this in um, the film Elizabeth, wonderful film with Kate Kate Blanchett, and you've got um, Robert Dudley, so he becomes the Earl of Leicester. Um, uh, who is the, one of the sort of supposed sort of uh, suitors uh, or favourites of Elizabeth I. Uh, I was going to say lover, but he's certainly a fa favour favourite uh, of Elizabeth I. And the it's de the the film depicts him with a maid of honour uh, who is wearing a dress that was gifted to the Queen, uh, and you suddenly see her sort of you know she's kissing uh, Dudley, and then you suddenly see her writhing around. Uh, and basically the dress has has been poisoned, this dress that has been given to Elizabeth. And in order to understand this, you need to understand um, the way in which uh, a 16th century dress was made. And you'd have this sort of tight bodice, uh, which would be full of wires. And the, what the poisoner would do would be to basically unpick the padding, and which would expose these bare, wire, sharp wires. You tip it with poison, and then the poison would pass through the body. No. Would pass into the body, and it, what, what's interesting about the sixteenth about um, early modern poison is that it acts in it can act in in several ways. It either acts by you know as you you were talking about earlier on through ingesting. So you, you know you might you might ingest arsenic or you might ingest mercury, and this would sort of you know just mess up your insides, cause all sorts of bleeding, asphyxiation, all sorts of things. Or what you do is you inhale vapors. 
Um, so throughout the 16th century, um, people are really careful about um, perfumers. So people who make perfume, you always see them being hauled up into court. Um, and examined about about various practices, particularly post fifteen seventy when Elizabeth is excommunicated, and basically the you know the the gloves are off. Uh, any good Catholic can you know uh, uh, could kill the Queen in in all good conscience and be and be pardoned, or it goes through the skin. So there are lots of representations of it throughout uh, early modern literature. Wonderful rich seam of this is revenge tragedies yeah, and you've got poison all sorts of poison things poison gloves poison mm. poison books there's a brilliant um example of this in the massacre of paris um by uh christopher marlowe in which a character the old queen fatally accepts poisoned gloves remarking methinks the gloves have a very strong perfume the scent whereof both make my head to ache. The fatal poison works within my head. My brain pan breaks. My heart doth faint. I die. So this is about. This is not about the poison passing into the through through the skin. This is about. This is about the the these vapors. The best example uh, that I've come across is the strange case of the poisoned pommel, uh, which is uh, an attempt to poison the saddle mm. of Elizabeth I uh, by a man called Edward Squire, mm. who's a sort of ordinary uh, scrivener, so a, a writer uh, in, in, in London. Um, he later becomes uh, a, a sailor, um, but not before that, uh, becomes a has, a has a post within Queen Elizabeth's stables. And so this, of course, means that he has intimate access to to the queen so he can he can basically get you know get hold of of um you know he can, he can be very sort of intimate uh and and sort of get to get close to where she is uh has very good access and there is a bizarre set of circumstances he ends up sort of going on a on a, an ex expedition to the west indies with drake he gets imprisoned in captured and imprisoned in spain and then there's a whole sort of very sort of complicated um uh, sort of run of events, which I, w I, I won't go into here. They're very, very detailed, and people disagree about it. Um, but what happens is he gets um, he gets um, he gets caught up with Jesuit priests connected to Robert Parsons, the, the sort of famous um, Jesuit priest, and the Walpole brothers. And the theory is that he was persuaded to assassinate uh, the monarch mm. by basically poisoning her pommel. And we've got a really good description of it here. It's described in two pamphlets that are purported to be about letters, um, probably written by Sir Francis Bacon. But we've got here an examination from 1583, 19th of October, where Edward Squire is before all sorts of uh, important legal people, Sir John Payton, the Attorney General Cook, Solicitor General Fleming, Francis Bacon, various other people. Um, and he says, um, he refers to uh, when Walpole, so in other words, this Jesuit priest, persuaded me to be employed against Her Majesty's person. He asked whether I could compound poisons. I said no, but that I had skill in perfumes and had read it in Tartaglia. And he, he refers here to um, the Italian mathematician Tartaglia. 
Um, so read in, in Tertalia of a, of a ball, the smoke whereof could make a man in a trance and some die. Walpole said that would be difficult, but to apply the poison to a certain place was the most convenient way. And so he then he then goes on about how to sort of how how he might ad- administer uh, the 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 poison. Um, Certain poisonous drugs, whereof opium was one, were to be beaten together, steeped in white mercury water, put into an earthen pot, and set a month in the window, then to be put in a double bladder, and the bladders pricked full of holes in the upper part, and carried in the palm of my hand upon a thick glove for the safeguard of my hand. This makes me think that basically it might the poison might have sort of gone through the hands so he's wearing a very sort of protective mm. heavy glove here um he then talk what's interesting then is he then talks about how he got hold of this poison and it seems that you know it's pretty easy to come by i bought 2 drams of opium and 5 of mercury water at an apothecary's shop in paternoster row so in other words in in london towards the further end near dr smith's house one ingredient at the pow bucklesbury and the other two in newdigate market last july and carried them 6 or 7 days he then talks about you know about basically mixing this all together putting it in the sun leaving it on a windowsill and then the person that he's staying with the dog, the little puppy that he's got. <laughs> this la- is not going to end well, la- is it? Laps it up. Oh, no. And no. Then, and then, di- and the then dies. dies. He said, I never saw I never saw this afterwards, and I think it died thereafter. It's like a plot in a Disney film. It, it's appalling. That's appalling. So, the puppy dies. Oh, oh, oh. Well, poison saddles. Is is I'm it? just going to finish off yeah. um, by talking about, so because we're talking about weapons, I'm going to yes. talk about not using weapons, because I think it's one of the most interesting things about it. And the best example of this is the 18th century, um, the Royal Navy, I'll go back to my comfort ground, where so many people associate um, British naval sea power and the success of British naval sea power ruling the waves with destroying their enemies, with actually fighting. Now, I've got a handful of examples here um, where they're called fleet seizures. This is when enemy fleets were captured without a shot being fired. And there are a handful of them. They're really, really important. 1793, so very early on in the French Revolution, um, the entire Mediterranean French fleet was captured. Uh, It was 22 ships of the line, eight frigates, and the entire arsenal and all of their shipbuilding stores without a shot being fired. 1796, we did exactly the same to the Dutch at Saldana Bay and then the Texel in 1799. Between those two, there were 17 ships of the line and four frigates. And the best one of all was the uh, Danes. Everyone knows about the Battle of Copenhagen in 1801. In 1807, we captured their entire navy. Um, 18 ships of the line, 11 frigates, two smaller ships. Um, and Russians at the end of the Napoleonic War, we captured nine ships of the line, the Tejas. All of these dramatically affected the balance of European sea power far more than any naval battle that was fought during the entire period. And they all happened without anyone dying. <laughs> so there you go. Using the Navy, not using the Navy. How does that work? It was actually all to do with threat. Hmm. It's all to do with credibility. And hmm. so for me... I'm going to kind of explode this open up a bit. It's actually the use of a weapon. It works best. Pirates are very good at this. It works best when your reputation is so fearsome that no one wants to fight you. Um, and that's all to do with credibility. So mm. pirates did it by uh, Blackbeard's famous example. He'd set fire to his hair and his beard and he'd be mm. terrified. Mm. Um, and they'd have um, uh, skulls and crossbones and, and maybe uh, little um, 
sound glasses to show that your time was running out. Yep. All to do with reputation and to get that reputation across in a convincing, incredible way. And the Royal Navy had the same problem, but they got it absolutely right. And it was these enormous um, fleet seizures where mm. that changed. So how do you do that? How does it work? Especially it even works on a, on a individual basis. I could be standing here with a sword and you could take one look at me and go, you're standing wrong. There's just yeah. no way yeah, yeah, you're yeah. either going to you know use that, it, you're yeah. not going to hit me with it, or you don't know what you're doing. In which case, I might as well not have the sword. I saw you using a sword last night. But, I, I would not mess. That's <laughs> the only thing I can do. <laughs> um, so it's actually to do with, it's not just having a weapon, it's to do with credibility and competence. That does slightly change when you've got a gun, and all I've got to yeah, do is yeah, point yeah. at you yeah. and pull the trigger. Uh, but even then... Assuming it's loaded. Well, you're assuming it's loaded, but also um, handguns are incredibly inaccurate over... Um, over you know anything over sort of ten fifteen feet, it really yeah. has to be yeah. you know really quite a distance for it to work. Um, so this this sort of sense of of um, being credible and actually understanding the truth of someone um, is intricately linked intimately linked with weapons. So mm. are they bluffing? Are you telling the truth? How do you identify that through behaviour? How do you bluff it? Yeah. Um, and again, yeah. again, it comes Poker down face. to this, this question of yeah. behaviour. Before we go, and this is the schoolboy in me coming out, what is the weirdest weapon you've come across in your in all your all the research that you did for this BBC Four series? Ooh, the weirdest weapon. Um, there's a there's a kind of storage case full of them at the um, Royal Armouries at Leeds, and um, uh, it's actually the National Firearms Centre. It's kind of associated with yep. it. It's where they keep all the firearms. And believe it or not, they actually have loads of really cool weapons from the Cold War. And they, they've got... But James like, Bond weapons. Just, I mean, they oh. have got cigarette lighter guns, they've got pen guns, comb guns, they've got the, the most ridiculous pen things. Pen guns. Yeah, they're wonderful. So it would be probably be one of those. Um, oh, no, I, I did come across a, a gun, it was a lady's gun, um, that you hid in a book. So um, you'd sit there with your Bible or whatever it is, or your your, your um, Jane Austen novel on your on your lap, but then you'd open and it the up. the book would fire. It, um, no, you'd open it up, and inside the kind of a hollowed out cavity was right. your... Was your um, so oh, the gosh. book wouldn't fire, but there was a gun hidden in the book. Um, oh, and, and, and a really amazing walking stick gun. Beautiful Ooh. thing. Um, so it's a little shotgun. Um, and you just twisted the handle and it made a trigger pop out. My, one of my favourites is this. They're also in the Royal Armoury in that? Sweden. Uh, an axe gun. <laughs> 17th century axe gun. That's not a that's made up. Uh, no, no, no. That's just someone saying two words. Absolutely. That's like saying a pig horse. Axe gun. No, no, no. It, it, absolutely terrifying. Wow. Could you imagine that through your head and then being shot? Yeah, no, I can't imagine that. So there we go. That is, that's weapons done. Brilliant. We've done unicorns, axe guns. Gifts. Poisoning. Dead puppies. Yeah. Uh, Disney blocks. Disney Disney blocks. Brilliant. We Thank should do the, the, the history, the unexpected history of Disney. Unexpected cartoons. Cartoons. That's what we'll do next. Very good. Now, before we go, I'm going to talk about my latest project. What, what's your latest project, Sam? My latest project is called History Masterclass. And it's for all of you who want to learn history, who want more than just um, a book talk from one of our country's best historians, but you can't commit to a university degree. Come along to one of our History Masterclasses. I set it up with Susie Lipscomb. I think a lot of you will know from telly and from books. And um, we've basically got a lot of our friends who are the best historians in the country to come and to offer um, seminars where you can learn in groups of about 30 in exquisite historical locations. You can learn from the very best. And it's not just about sitting there listening to a book talk. It's going to be a sort of a seminar set up. You'll be hands on with documents to be able to ask all the questions that you want. And it will help you really pinpoint down um 
the information that you want to know about the past. So do check out thehistorymasterclass.com. Excellent. And that's how that's how people find out about this. That is. We're on Twitter as well, at the History MC. Excellent. Which is quite fun. So we're um we're spitting out rhymes and uh facts as well. And rhymes, rhyming facts. Rhyming facts. Yeah, but it's a new way for everyone to um to learn history that isn't a podcast, it isn't a book. It's new, it's different, and it's gonna be awesome. And you get to meet you in the flesh. You do. What more and, what more could yeah. you ask? And for? we'll get we'll get um, the Professor James Daybell to do one as well. So <laughs> he can tell you he can do he'll do a, a masterclass on poison dresses. I'd come to that. Poison dress poison dresses and and maybe uh, secret codes and ciphers Ooh. and spies. I want to come to that and not mine. Yeah, I think I think that's very wise. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. I want to come to yours. Well, very Nelson's Navy. Oh, oh, oh mm, good, good, mm, good. Yes, it's all unexpected facts. Excellent. Yeah. Great stuff. Uh, thank you all for listening, everyone. Don't forget you're the third and most important member of this podcast. Do please get in touch with your ideas about the unexpected history of weapons. Um, yeah, send us a message on Twitter. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs> Well, if you like this podcast on weapons and you want to see a series that tells you what they're really all about, then do search for my name on the iPlayer and watch BBC4 on Thursdays at 9pm for the next couple of weeks. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.